Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's International and National Security Law Practice Group, was recorded on Monday, June 27, 2017, during a live Courthouse Steps Teleforum conference call. Welcome to the Practice Group's Teleform conference call, as today we have a special Teleform call, two, two calls actually, this is our first call, Courthouse Steps call, we'll be discussing uh, recently decided cases today, um, this is not quite a case yet, I'm not sure, but uh, uh, we'll be talking today about the President's uh, immigration moratorium and what the Supreme Court has done with it today. I am Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel and Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. Please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Also, this call is being recorded for use as a podcast in the future, and this call is open to press. We're very pleased to welcome three experts to our call today. Professor Joss Blackman uh, is an associate professor of law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. In Houston, um, He'll be followed most likely in opening remarks by David B. Rivkin, Jr. He's a partner at Baker & Hostetler right here in Washington, D.C., and our third speaker joining us late will be Professor Ilya Soman. He's a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Uh, Josh Blackman's going to lead us off, but he ha- he will leave early. Uh, then I think we'll hear from David Rifkin and then Ilya Soman, who will remain with us uh, for the full 60 minutes of the call in order to take questions um, and-, and give us answers. With that, Professor Josh Blackman, the floor is yours. Thank you, Dean. Uh, This is Josh Blackman. I apologize in advance that I can't say for q and I have several other radio appearances. If anyone has questions, they can email me or tweet me at Josh M. Blackman. Um, This decision was actually quite surprising. If you'd read most of the commentary, everyone expected the court to either deny review or give a full victory to the challengers and give President Trump nothing. Instead, we got something that I didn't quite foresee. Um, There was no recorded dissent, And all nine justices agreed, first, to grant certiorari, and second, they agreed to modify the lower court's opinion. Specifically, the court said that with respect to people who have no bona fide connection to the United States, the travel ban can be applied to them. Um, What's a bona fide connection? It can be a familial relationship. It could be an employment relationship. It could be a relationship with an educational institution but there has to be some sort of um, pre-existing connection. Um, And this modification isn't as big of a deal as you may think because under the travel ban, there were a series of waivers. And with with respect to people with connections, they almost certainly would have received a waiver and would not have been subject to the ban. Um, At issue with the ban were specifically people who had zero connection to the United States. Who is now allowed to be banned? People with zero connections to the United States. So what this decision basically does is codify the waivers, at least for this period, and allows the government to reject everyone else. In that sense, this is a pretty significant victory for the Trump administration, again, with no dissents. Um, Another ground I think is worth stressing is that the court's decision rejects the reasoning of the lower court. The Fourth Circuit, in an en banc decision, held that President Trump's Twitter and his campaign statements have tainted the executive order with animus, and that in all of its respects, it cannot be enforced. Here, the court held that, yes, it can be enforced with respect to a significant number of people. Um, So although it wasn't uh, a decision on the merits, I think Justice Thomas is right. He noted in concurring opinion that this signals how the court would rule on the merits. Um, I'll note that Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, they concurred and they said they would have let the entire executive order go into effect. Um, so do, what do we have here that's missing? There's no ruling from, there's no dissent from Justice Sotomayor, no dissent from Justice Ginsburg, um, none of the sort of uh, uh, rulings we've seen below. Um, so that's the decision itself. What comes next gets very, very difficult. The court set the case for argument in October, which is actually uh, a world's away. Um, In a couple of days, the Trump administration can begin enforcing its travel ban as applied to these people with no connection to the United States. They can start to enforce it. The government has said they need 90 days of the travel ban to reassess their policies. Um, I know lawyers don't like doing math, but if we count today, 90 days forward, by the end of October, I'm sorry, by the end of September, beginning of October, the policy will have run its course. At that point, there's a very legitimate question over whether the case is moot. 
And the court seemed to acknowledge that, and the court actually added a question presented saying, is this case moot? Um, my prediction is that when this comes back in October, the court could very well just dismiss the case as moot, and that would have the effect of uh, uh, vacating the Fourth and Ninth Circuit's decisions. Um, that has a lot of uh, 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 fascinating ramifications, the first of which is the court would never have to rule on the merits of the policy. The president got his travel ban in place. And more importantly, the awful decisions from the Fourth and the Ninth Circuits have been wiped off the face of the earth. Um, so perhaps that's the compromise. That's what the court has tried to do here. They tried to allow the um, uh, uh, lower court decisions to go away. They give the president some discretion, and they uh, uh, don't uh, reaffirm the lower courts. Um, but I want to focus on a different aspect, and this is something I've read elsewhere. I've written about elsewhere called the presumption of regularity. This is the notion that when the judiciary is scrutinizing the actions of the executive branch, there's a certain deference due to the president. And that's simply not a deference that's been given by any of the lower courts so far. They've treated the president um, in an almost antagonistic manner. And they said that because of his tweets, he's basically abandoned that presumption of regularity and that everything he's done is infected by his animus. And we saw not even the slightest hint of that in the court's opinion. They said, well, we'll issue this ruling, we'll give the president 90 days, and at that point, um, uh, we'll reassess it in the fall. And that is the sort of decision I would expect from the court with respect to anyone, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George Bush, anyone. Um, so I think this decision, if nothing else, sends a signal to the lower courts that you've been acting um, uh, perhaps improperly and out of line. Now, this is far from over, though, with respect to litigation, and I'll close on this point. The court didn't define with specificity who has a bona fide connection with the United States. They simply didn't define that. Um, they said they gave a couple examples, people with a family relationship, people with a job offer, people with an admission to university. This is now going to fall to the lower courts in Seattle and San Francisco and Brooklyn to decide who does and does not have this bona fide relationship. And you can be certain that the various groups who brought these lawsuits will challenge the scope of this ruling. Um, Justice Thomas said that the standard is, quote, unworkable. He's probably right. Um, but at that point, the court's already washed his hands of this matter, and there won't be any problems going forward. Um, I will stop here and turn it over to uh, David and, my, uh, and, and Ilya as well, but I, I'll stress that this is a significant decision that I didn't expect, most people didn't expect, and the court always seems to throw us curveballs in the final day of the term. David Rifkin. Thank you very much. Um, I agree in substantial part with my good friend, Professor Blackman. Uh, I think that this is a, a substantial victory for the administration. I would also say, even more importantly, it's a victory for the rule of law. Uh, I will elaborate a little bit about uh, what may come in, in, in the future and dissent in one part from Josh's remarks. I am not troubled by the mootness issue. And, and by the way, I would note that the question that the court asked to be addressed is whether the challenges to the key section of executive order of Section 2C became moot on June 14, 2017, because by that point in time, the original 90-day period has run out. The administration's response to that, of course, has been that we have not started running the 90-day clock because uh, everything has been stayed. What I would expect to see, uh, and, and so the, the court did not ask the question, which I think uh, Josh was presaging, namely uh, with the uh, stay now liberating the administration to proceed with the bulk of the implementation of executive order, um, 90 days would indeed run out uh, in, uh, in September. The court did not ask to brief this particular question. Uh, one of the reasons for it is I would fully expect the administration, and they're not going to do it tomorrow, and they should not do it tomorrow, but uh, after they're done with a 90-day study to issue another executive order indicating that they need another three months or another six months to uh, to analyze this issue further, or possibly that they decided to make at least some of those restrictions with regard to individuals who have no connections to the United States, decided to make it permanent. So the least likely scenario, in my opinion, 
uh, is uh, the one of, of, of moodiness. And then, of course, um, there's the old standby of uh, evading review but capable of repetition. So I, I think the merits would be reached in this case. Now, let me talk uh, a little bit more about the merits and what this case is about. Um, this case is fundamentally about, and this decision revitalizing the rule of law, I'm not that concerned about the merits of executive order or like they're often reasonable people can disagree about it. But as a, a matter of law, what the Fourth Circuit have done, what the Ninth Circuit have done, is basic repudiation, an act of judicial disobedience, judicial resistance, not only to the Constitution, to the binding adjudication of these types of issues by the Supreme Court. We, of course, have a triptych of immigration law cases, Kleindeist, Fialo, and the last one, Kerry versus Din, that stand for the proposition that um, uh, you are not supposed to look behind the four corners of a given document as long as the executive provided a facially legitimate and a bona fide justification for its action, the judicial inquiry stops there. But this uh, approach is not, repeat, not unique to the uh, immigration area. Indeed, it permeates for fundamental separation of powers reasons the entire foreign policy space. So despite the rhetoric of opponents, it's not that the judiciary is completely disabled from looking at those issues, but they look at them fundamentally uh, in a different way than they do in the domestic sphere. And that's the cardinal sin of the Fourth and the Ninth Circuit and the district courts uh, below that applied the domestic case law. In a foreign policy space, I would argue that if the executive puts forward this you know, facially legitimate bona fide reason, which is important for reasons of accountability, which is a, one of the most paramount constitutional virtues, the judiciary stops there. There's no balancing involved uh, that typically occurs in uh, cases in the domestic policy sphere. And indeed, I would argue it would be fundamentally illegitimate for the judiciary to try to do the balancing here uh, if for no other reason than political question doctrine. It is essential to reanimate, to restore this framework and the decision on the merits. Uh, and again, transcends greatly the, 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 whatever merits of, the, of this executive order may be or even immigration law space. And I think the court understands this. And to me, I'm not surprised by the fact that it's unanimous. I think that what has been done by the lower courts here is so outrageous, so disobedient, and so injurious, not only to Article 2, but frankly, the Supreme Court's own institutional dignitas, that it was, in, in, in my opinion, predictable that it would be unanimous opinion, or at least something close to, you know, 8-1 or 6-3. Uh, or so uh, the only question is what price the chief had to pay uh, for getting everybody on board and the, the fact that there is this, and I agree with Josh, this almost you know, symbolic uh, uh, preservation of the PI decisions below relating to individuals of significant connection to the United States, uh, I think that's not too high of a price to pay with the following caveat. When the marriage decision comes out, again, mindful of the fact that, in my opinion, it is about revitalizing the Supreme Court jurisprudence in the foreign affairs field that's animated by proper separation of powers considerations, I would hope to have a strong opinion, an opinion that, frankly, expresses indignation at what has been done by the two circuit courts and, and the district courts, and articulates with utmost clarity what is the constitutionally proper approach. So I would rather have a 5-4 opinion that articulates this view than a 9-0 opinion that, that models it. I will stop here. Thank you. Very good. I want to thank you both for your opening remarks. Uh, in case you joined us late, uh, this is our teleform conference call, the first of the day. We're uh, speaking about the uh, uh, matter the, the court addressed today, the uh, immigration moratorium uh, with Josh Blackman, Professor Josh Blackman, David Rifkin, uh, waiting for Ilya Soman, and I think we have him on the telephone now. Uh, do we have Ilya Soman with us? I might need to unmute his phone here. Stand by. Do we have uh, Ilya Soman with us? Yes, I'm here. 
So, Ilya, we've heard from Professor Josh Blackman. We've heard from David Rifkin. If you could give us your thoughts, which I imagine might be slightly different than than those two, uh, take 10 minutes, and then we'll open it up to questions. Professor Ilya Silman. So I don't know what the other two participants said because I just got on, uh, but my view is that this ruling is a mixed bag. Uh, it maintains the lower court injunctions uh, with respect to foreign nationals who have a so-called bona fide tie to the United States uh, while lifting uh, the injunction with respect to all the others. It's worth noting that the legal standard for a preliminary injunction includes uh, several criteria, uh, one of which is that it's only supposed to be issued uh, with respect to uh, plaintiffs who uh, have a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. Uh, if the Supreme Court majority followed this rule, that suggests they believe that those who uh, do have such uh, a, a bona fide relationship with the U.S., that they do have a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. And that in turn implies uh, that the majority of justices agree either with the Fourth Circuit ruling, which says that uh, the travel ban was motivated by unconstitutional religious discrimination, which by the way, is also my view, or uh, that they agreed with the Ninth Circuit that the travel ban exceeded uh, the president's authority granted by Congress. Uh, and uh, obviously, either of those scenarios or both of them would be bad news uh, for the administration. Moreover, even with respect to uh, those nationals, uh, those foreign nationals who uh, are not covered by the part of the injunction that was maintained, those that don't don't have a so-called bona fide connection, uh, then it's still possible that the justices believe that there is a likelihood of success on the merits for them because a preliminary injunction uh, has to meet some other standards as well, such as, for example, the balance of equities. Uh, and it is, in fact, the balance of equities that the uh, Supreme Court majority focused on in explaining why uh, they did not want to uphold the injunction with respect to those who uh, don't have a uh, bona fide connection. So it's possible they think those people have a likelihood of success on the merits, uh, but simply don't meet one or more of the other criteria uh, for an injunction, uh, preliminary injunction, that is. Uh, I would note also uh, that I suspect, like uh, Josh and David, I'm not very satisfied with the Supreme Court's majority re reasons for drawing a distinction between those with a bona fide connection and those who do not have one, uh, in that the court says actually very little about this, and what it does say strikes me as raising more questions and answers. Uh, they point out correctly under current precedent that uh, people who don't have a prior connection to the U.S., foreigners who don't, uh, don't have a constitutional right to enter the country, uh, which is true, uh, but neither do those foreign nationals who uh, do, not, do have such a connection but don't have a green card or a pre-existing visa or the like. Uh, but I think this, this, uh, this whole distinction about whether they have a constitutional right to enter or not uh, is not actually relevant to the reasons why the lower courts uh, concluded that the travel ban was likely to be illegal. Uh, the whole point of uh, uh, constitutional rules about discrimination on the basis of religion or race or other similar classifications is that they apply even to government benefits and laws that do not, uh, that do not deal with things to which uh, people have an existing right uh, or an existing constitutional right. For example, no one argues that anyone has a constitutional right uh, to get Social Security benefits. Congress could abolish Social Security tomorrow, uh, and that might be a bad thing, but it wouldn't uh, violate a constitutional right. However, it's still the case that it would be unconstitutional for uh, Congress to adopt a law saying that only Christians are allowed to get Social Security benefits, or that only people who are not Muslims are, uh, and so forth. And the same thing, I think, applies here. If, as I believe, uh, this travel ban is based on unconstitutional religious discrimination against Muslims, uh, then it doesn't matter that the right that it affects is not itself a constitutional right. Rather, the constitutional right that is implicated is the one against 
uh, discrimination on the basis of religion. And similarly, if the president, as the Ninth Circuit ruled, uh, lacks statutory authorization to issue the travel ban, uh, then it doesn't matter whether there was a pre-existing constitutional right to enter the country or not. All that matters is the president exceeded his authority. Uh, so uh, today's ruling, I think, is problematic uh, in some ways. Uh, it gives both sides some things that they uh, would probably like and uh, also gives both sides cause for concern. Uh, the last thing I would like to very briefly mention is the mootness issue. In setting the case down for oral argument in the fall, uh, the Supreme Court asked the parties to brief the question of whether uh, the travel ban became moot on June 14th when the initial 90-day period uh, would have expired. Trump has issued a modification to the order which says it will only take effect after all lower court injunctions against it are lifted. Uh, but I think this raises... Uh, uh, serious questions about the true motivation for the order and is the supposed official rationale as well we need 90 days to review vetting procedures for uh, entrance from uh, these six countries of course by the time the case is argued in the fall there will easily have been more than 90 days to do this uh, and the fact that the administration nonetheless insists on uh, putting the travel ban into effect uh, when and if the injunctions are lifted that employs that the true motive here is something other than uh, reviewing vetting for national security purposes. And of course, the plaintiffs and others like myself have contended all along that that official motive is pretextual, that the real motive is uh, anti-Muslim animus and discrimination. Uh, so uh, obviously there's much discussed, but I think I'll stop there. Very good. This is Dean Reuter once again. I think we still have Josh Blackman yeah, on the I'm, telephone. Yeah, I'm here. If I could, if I can briefly. Yeah, respond. let's uh, let's uh, break order here and give Josh Blackman uh, a couple minutes to respond, and then we'll open the floor to questions. Uh, Professor Josh Blackman. Thank you, and I'm grateful to both Ilya and David for providing comments. Um, I'd like to piggyback on Ilya's comments in one respect. The argument of the Ninth Circuit was that the president lacked the statutory authority to exclude anyone under the framework in the Immigration and Nationality Act because he said he hasn't made the requisite showing that they would be detrimental to U.S. interests. By allowing the injunction to go forward in part, I'm sorry, the executive order to go forward in part, um, the court effectively affirmed the fact that the president does have the statutory authority. Now, it's not a ruling on the merits, but if the court was inclined to agree with the Ninth Circuit that there's no statutory authority, period, the injunction should have remained in effect at altogether. The second point that's worth stressing is that President Trump's executive order had a number of waivers, discretion, if you will. And the sorts of people who were going to be given discretion were people with bona fide connections to the United States. So in a, a limited sense, the court has basically codified those discretionary hardships, right? The court, the, the executive order said, if you can show a hardship because of a familial relation, we will let you in. The courts codify that. So, in effect, this order only applied to a fairly small number of people. The court's order this morning allows it to apply to a small number of people. Um, the more I study this, the more I see that the court more or less codified those hardship exemptions and gave Trump what he wanted. Um, they did not go down this animus route. They did not go down the Establishment Clause route. I agree with Ilya and David. This will probably be mooted by the summertime. I don't think we'll see another decision on the merits. <laughs> But uh, 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 well, uh, maybe not with David. I'll let David respond. But I, agree <laughs> I was going to say, I agree with Ilya enough that I think this will probably be mooted out. Uh, uh, but 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 maybe not. So I will stop here. I'll have to sign off in a minute, take another call. Uh, but I appreciate all of your attention. Thank you, uh, <clears throat> Dean. Can I just make a very brief? Uh, of course, this uh, is David. This is David Rifkin speaking. Go sure. ahead. Dave. Uh, uh, I, I'm certainly much closer to. Uh, Professor Blakeman uh, on this with a couple of caveats that he heard regarding the uh, the possibility of mootness than I am to uh, to Professor Soman. But let me just uh, say a couple of things. First of all, look, this is a, a bit of an idiosyncratic decision that rejects, and I'm that respect, I'm completely on the same page as Professor Blakeman, rejects the rationale of 
both the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit. What the court is doing here is, and, and remember, uh, we're, we're not talking about granting a preliminary injunction or rejecting one. We're talking about staying one. There's a good discussion on page 10 of, of a decision about where, you know, the, the court, in, in fact, is, is here. The Supreme Court is, is exercising an equitable judgment of its own. And they're focusing uh, on the, the equities. And yes, Professor Summon is right that the first threshold question in any kind of injunctive relief analysis is probability of success and the merits. However, a number of circuit courts, and for that matter, Supreme Court, have pointed out that other factors, including the balance of hardships, um, are also important. And in fact, there's sort of inverse correlation among different factors where you need to demonstrate probability of success, or strong probability of success and the merits is, uh, is, is considerably attenuated if a balance of hardships um, favors one side. So the way I read this is it is a symbolic acknowledgement that at least with regard to a very small category of people, and I agree with Professor Blackman, this is just codifying the waivers, we've got a tiny number of people, their, the balance of hardships favors them. There's no particularly strong interest that the executive branch can, can or has adduced here. Therefore, they're going to get out of boy. On everything else, this is a decisive rejection of an absolutely, again, whatever you think about the merits of those executive orders, first and second, an absolutely absurd, disobedient, uh, wrong in a constitution, wrong in a case law decisions by the Fourth and Ninth Circuit, and I have every confidence that the Supreme Court will follow on that and the decision on the merits because, uh, as I said in my uh, opening remarks, the failure to do so would be would be most regrettable because I think the lower courts need to be seriously chastised for the, the kind of behavior they engage in, which is utterly unjudicial and utterly inappropriate uh, in our constitutional democracy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, once again, uh, we've, we've uh, as scheduled, uh, we're doing uh, the rest of the call without Professor Joss Blackman, uh, David Rivkin, and Professor Ilya Soman remain. Let's open the floor to questions. In a moment, we'll all hear an announcement that will say the floor mode is on. After you hear that announcement, if you have a question for either of our remaining guests, push the star button and then the pound button on your telephone. So once again, if you have a question for our either of our experts, uh, we uh, we have plenty of time. Uh, we'll go right up until 2.30 with this special call. Um, let me remind folks our next scheduled telephone conference call will start at 3 p.m. today at this same number. Uh, we'll be discussing another of, of the court's uh, cases uh, from this morning, uh, Trinity Lutheran, the Religious Liberties case. Uh, right now, we have five questions pending. Uh, if you want to address your call to a particular uh, uh, one of our guests, uh, Professor Soman or David Rifkin, feel free to do that. Otherwise, I'm going to give each of them a chance to respond to every question. Let's go to our first caller. Hi, this is Devin Watkins uh, from the Cato Institute. And uh, I wanted to ask about the stay and how that implicates potentially the merits of the travel ban case. Um, it seems to me the court is suggesting that foreigners don't have the same equal protection and establishment clause rights, and that it is the U.S. party with some type of connection to them that is give, uh, allowing these equal protection and First Amendment uh, rights to be incorporated or applied against that person that's applying. And that's why people that don't have any connection to the U.S., uh, aren't implicated and they released it. Is that uh, a fair assessment of uh, some of the implications in this day? Um, it's, uh, hi, Devin. Devin is actually one of my former students at George Mason University. It's a very interesting question. Uh, I would My tentative answer is I don't think that's what the court is saying uh, because uh, re re the equal protection establishment rights here uh, well, if it's equal protection, then it's discrimination against a particular set of people, and the people actually being discriminated against here, if anybody, are the foreigners, not the Americans. If it's establishment clause, then it's a structural limitation on the government's power regardless of who uh, it's discriminating against or who it's targeting. Uh, so uh, either way, it wouldn't really make sense to say that there is a distinction here between the foreigners and the uh, Americans. 
Moreover, it's worth noting, uh, picking up on something that David Rifkin uh, said a moment ago, that the likelihood of success on demerits criterion uh, is not just one of several factors in a balancing test can be weighed against each other. Uh, it's uh, a factor that must be met even if uh, the other uh, factors in the uh, standard for a preliminary injunction uh, are met uh, entirely by the plaintiff. So uh, if the Supreme Court majority is following the rules for preliminary injunctions, then this strongly implies they think that there's at least some category of people who do have a likelihood of success on demerits, whereas on the other hand, the exclusion of others from the injunction does not suggest that they think those people don't have such a likelihood because they could be excluded based on the balance of equities or the public interest or other uh, factors on the test. Uh, so it's potentially possible that uh, Devin is right and that the Supreme Court will ultimately say, well, uh, these constitutional rules only apply uh, in cases where there's some kind of tie to some American. Uh, but the logic of both the Establishment Clause argument and the uh, equal protection argument uh, doesn't really uh, fit that distinction very well. Can I, can I cut in? I strongly disagree in part because if you look at the, uh, the triptych of the most notable immigration cases uh, that I mentioned earlier, but any, any other case, you can always find an American, uh, be it an institution like, um, like a, a college, a university, be it a state, uh, and I'm not suggesting that states had standing, in fact, I think they didn't, but at least theoretically, you can have a state, you can have an individual who is a permanent resident or a U.S. citizen who wants to bring in a spouse or some other relative, et cetera, et cetera. So it cannot possibly be about uh, the, the notion, because yes, uh, I don't think anybody would seriously argue that unless there is some statutory rights that Congress has granted to individuals without uh, any ties to the United States who are overseas, and, and they have not, that uh, they would have standing to initiate this litigation. So you'd always have a U.S. player involved. That's point number one. Point number two, uh, to be hyper-technical, I wasn't suggesting that other uh, considerations in granting injunctive relief would be sufficient in a situation where the court concluded that the people seeking some form of injunctive relief are going to lose on the merits. That's not how it works. However, uh, the court may well, and, and, and has in the past, both Supreme Court and, and appellate courts, have basically relaxed the level of scrutiny with which they look at the issue of a probability of success on the merits. They sort of said, well, there is some chance that there will be success on the merits, and because the other factors are overwhelmingly met by the party seeking relief, we're going to do that. I would not overread this decision to suggest anything more than that. Because again, the fundamental reason, uh, is, uh, the, the fundamental implication is that the entirety of the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit decisions, for reasons that Professor Blackman and I have articulated, swept off a table. This is a temporary symbolic SOP to a very small category of people to be followed by reaffirmation, I believe, on the merits of the proper case law in this area, constitutionally proper case law in this area. Once again, if you have a question, push the star button and the pound button on your telephone. We'll get to as many questions as possible. We still have six six pending, so let's move right along, and I'll ask the uh, audience members to be as concise as possible with your questions. Go ahead, caller. Uh, this is Paul Larkin from the Heritage Foundation. Um, this would be to both panelists. Can this order be defended in its original or its modified forms on the ground that it's symbolic in nature, that it's a statement by President Trump that he is going to exercise every power he has under his office to protect the American people, uh, particularly from assaults in this region, regardless of whether it is effective or not at stopping individual people, regardless of whether 100% of all the terrorists that otherwise could be caught are caught or not, but simply as a way of showing the world I'm going to do uh, everything I can in order to stop this from happening in America. I go first. The short answer is yes, uh, and strongly yes. Uh, the whole emphasis on, on efficacy of a particular measure is typically what you do in the context of a of, of particularly a scru strict scrutiny context 
government-type uh, balancing of a government's interest against the severity of a constitutional deprivation being inflicted on parties. That analysis is fundamentally inappropriate, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, in the context of foreign affairs, where once the, uh, a facially legitimate bona fide reason has been articulated, the judicial inquiry uh, comes to an end. But more specifically, in response, in response to your point, uh, absolutely, in times of war and in foreign policy in general, the president is entitled to provide uh, a symbolic reaffirmation of American strength, American vigor, a particular belief, whether you agree with it or not, both regard to the foreigners. But let's also say, if you wanted to reassure the American people that after eight years of what he believed to be an abdication of strong defense of our national security, he wants to reassure the American people that that's how things are going to be. By the way, let me also make a point which some of you may find controversial. Uh, animus towards somebody, uh, rightly or wrongly, you believe to be your enemy in wartime, has has been endemic in foreign policy. I would urge for some of you to go and look, for example, at the level of rhetoric that was used in World War II and World War One, and Korean War. I mean, it's redolent with, which I don't think this is the case with, with President Trump's statement, but those statements that I mentioned are redolent with all sorts of prescribed motives ranging from, you know, uh, discrimination on the basis of race, discrimination on the basis of ethnicity, mocking. I mean, we, we used to mock the hell out of Japanese belief in, in the cult of emperor, which is a, a key part of, of, of a Japanese uh, religious system. Nobody seemed to think that that was inappropriate. We used to do the, the, the same thing regard to the Germans. So uh, all sorts of symbolic motives are perfectly sufficient to sustain the exercise of presidential authority in the foreign affairs field, even if we all think they're ridiculous, because that's not the task of Article 3 to be passing judgments on this stuff. Uh, as you can probably guess, I very much disagree with most of what David just said. First, let's start with the fact that this is not a symbolic action. It's a real and substantial limitation on many people's freedoms. You might say, well, 90 days isn't that long, but for some people, some of the people involved, it could make the difference between life and death. Uh, so uh, if this were, were indeed purely a symbolic action, like the president issuing a statement saying, uh, you know, I'm going to do all I can to prevent radicalism as terrorism, then it would be perfectly constitutional. But it's not a purely symbolic action at all. Uh, secondly, uh, the fact that the national security rationale for it is weak, I would say nearly non-existent, uh, is relevant in a situation where there is strong evidence of pretextual unconstitutional motivation, in this case, religious animus against Muslims. That's a very standard aspect of the Supreme Court's rulings in pretextual discrimination cases going back many years. Uh, once the plaintiffs provide evidence of an unconstitutional discriminatory motive, like racial discrimination, religious discrimination, ethnic discrimination, and so on, then it's the government's burden to show that they would have enacted the challenged action anyway. And and the fact that the national security rationale here is extremely weak undermines any possible case that the uh, government uh, could have for showing that. Finally, uh, David is right that in wartime there is a history of uh, unfortunate, in some cases racist or other uh, dangerous rhetoric. However, uh, this is not actually wartime with respect to any of the six nations involved. We're not at war with any of them, nor are we at war with the Muslim religion as a whole. Even uh, Trump uh, has tried to distance himself from uh, such a notion uh, so that this is very different from uh, simply you know, barring the citizens of a nation that we might be at, that we are officially at war with, uh, this is actions against countries which we are at peace with. In the case of Syria, it's even a uh, country governed by a regime, the Assad regime, that at least until recently the president has been saying that we should be working more closely with uh, and the like. Uh, so uh, finally, I would add that. 
if you look at the history of discriminatory government policies during wartime, it's not a pretty history. Uh, you can think of cases like the Japanese internment and others where severe impositions and discrimination on, uh, with respect to civil liberties and the like were enacted in situations where the national security justification uh, was extremely weak and large numbers of people were harmed. Sadly, I think uh, this is in the same sort of tradition, although uh, if it's prevented from going into effect, uh, it probably won't inflict anything like the same sort of harm. Uh, I think the fact that uh, there is a national security situation uh, and the like is relevant, uh, but it is not a justification for the judiciary for suspending uh, the rules with respect to racial, ethnic, and religious discrimination. And history shows that when the courts look the other way on that, uh, we get very unfortunate results. Can I just, this is very important, Dean, so if I can just cut briefly yeah. on two points. First of all, Ilya, why do you ignore the fact that in the three cases that dealt with this issue, okay, Mandel, Fialo, and Kerry versus Din, the courts were perfectly willing to tolerate the level of, they were not concerned at all with the question of whether or not there's some kind of constitutionally prescribed action that would have been sufficient in the domestic sphere. In Mandel, for example, we had a clear-cut case of content discrimination, meaning what? We did not, to put it very simplistically and somewhat crudely, we did not want a given professor to come in because he was a commie, okay? If he was a Keynesian, okay, if he was into Torlin Weber or, 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 or some other philosopher, he would have come in here. That is a clear-cut case of content discrimination, and I would argue, would, would certainly in the domestic sphere, would violate the First Amendment. There's nothing particularly magical about the Establishment Clause portion thereof. I mean, discriminating on the basis of speech or association is equally objectionable. The court was not troubled by this because it is not justiciable, okay? Point number one. And, and that's the, the the biggest cardinal sin of a fourth and ninth circuit that they paid lip services at best to this line of cases and looked at the domestic cases like McCree, where indeed you know if you uh, I can think of very few domestic policy measures where if a government is shown to be acting on the basis of of animus, be it religious, be it ethnic, be it gender, be it sexual orientation, uh, that that would not uh, tank. The underlying action, no matter what its policy merits are. I mean, that's the that's what animates case law on, on invidious discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. But this is an entirely different sphere. Point number one. Point number two. Look, I'm not suggesting we're at war with Islam. I'm not even necessarily suggesting uh, that we're at war with radical Islam. That's not in my lane. I'm a lawyer. But I would say with respect that it is utterly ridiculous to conclude that Article Three courts are in the position to determine whom are we at war with. Okay, how long this war is going to last, and what is the best strategy for winning this war? That is first and foremost a task for Article Two, to the extent Article One partakes of some war-making powers, inferior in my opinion to those of a president, but still formidable ones. That's for Article One. There's zero of a role here for Article Three in this context. Thank you. Can I briefly respond? Yeah, and then I'm I'm afraid we're going to have to move on after that. We've okay. got seven questions yeah, so, pending now. Uh, so. On the first point with respect to Mandel and Kerry and so forth, uh, those cases distinguish between bona fide rationales offered by the government for excluding people and ones that are pretextual. The, the, ninth, uh, sorry, the Fourth Circuit went into this at length, uh, at least in Mandel, uh, which I think was wrongly decided, but at least in that case, there was a clear uh, and to all appearances sincere rationale for excluding the Marxist professor here the official rationale of national security seems highly pretextual and extremely weak. I would also note that the Establishment Clause might be different from free exercise or freedom of speech because the Establishment Clause is a structural limitation on government power. It is not a right that applies to particular individuals. Uh, so even if you think that uh, foreign nationals can be excluded on bases that violate individual constitutional rights, they may not be excludable on bases that violate structural limitations on government power. But it is, in fact, 
fact, actually my view that Mandel uh, and other similar cases were wrongly decided, and I would be happy to see the court limit or overrule them, though I don't think it would need to do so to strike down the uh, travel ban. Uh, I certainly agree that it is not the job of the court to decide which countries uh, or foreign entities we are at war with. However, uh, the court can take due note of the fact that other branches of government have determined we are at war with a particular uh, party or state or not. Uh, and in fact, many aspects of federal law do, do depend on whether we are at war uh, with a particular entity or not, including many that uh, are decided by courts in various cases. In this instance, neither Congress nor the President has made any determination that we are at war with these six nations. And certainly there has never been any determination that we're at war with Muslims generally, and if in fact any such determination would be extremely unusual and harmful and dangerous. So uh, in this case, we are in fact at peace with all six of these countries, legally speaking, uh, and the courts are well within their powers to recognize that and act accordingly. Uh, once again, if you'd like to join the conversation, push the star button and the pound button on your telephone. We're coursing through as many questions and answers as we can. Go right ahead, caller. Hi, this is Mark Smith in New York. I have a, a mechanical question. Uh, who bears the burden of proof in this instant to establish the existence of a bona fide relationship, and who also makes the initial decision? Is this going to be an administrative agency, or will the lower courts make this decision? And what would prevent uh, the Trump administration from essentially taking the time necessary to assess whether or not there's a bona fide relationship uh, on par with what it takes for the District of Columbia to decide whether or not you get a concealed carry permit? Well, Josh, do you want to go first? Uh, I can go first, or David can go first, whichever you prefer. I'll go first. I've been going first often enough. Okay. So I think this is a good question, uh, and the court majority is kind of vague on this. Um, so it may be that there would sort of be default procedural rules. Uh, I do think in many cases it should be relatively clear whether – such a relationship exists or not uh, uh, because of the explanation the court sets out. Obviously, in the case of a familial relationship, often it should be possible to prove that you are you know, a relative of a particular person. Similarly, the court suggests that with respect to an employment relationship or a relationship with a, with a university or the like, that there has to be some kind of formal documentation. Uh, but uh, it, it also is possible that there is some kind, sort of guidance in general principles of administrative or immigration law. If so, I may not be the best person to uh, you know, address that technical aspect of it. We'll just add a sentence. We, we don't disagree for a change, but typically, right, the questioner, um, typically if you're a smart uh, administrative agency, you prepare a record. If you're done one, you're not going to prepare a record and let the court engage in some fact-finding of its own. But I agree, really, that the, 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 this issue is, is, is pretty much cut and dry, which is why I don't think there's going to be much litigation about this. We're talking about a universe of, of folks who have a clearly understood familiar relationship, well understood in the immigration law context, or somebody who has been issued a, a visa of some kind, either to study or, or come here and on, on a business visa. Let's move right along to our next question. Uh, yes, this is Ned Jacobs. Uh, my question is, if this matter does move on to the merits, uh, would the administration be able to bring in evidence that uh, for Islam, that it is not just a religious uh thought process, but also a political one, uh, that when you look at the Quran, uh, that it calls upon uh, the people of Islam to take over the world and to uh, discriminate against all non-Muslims uh, who are uh, subjects within Muslim countries, uh, so that it is not just a religious system, but also a political system and whether or not that kind of uh, evidence of the foundations of Islam would be able to be brought into this uh, question. Uh, 
Well, let, let me go first, if you don't mind, Ilya. I hope not. Um, for uh, one fundamental, and again, I don't want to turn this to the, the debate about dimitude and, and, and the true nature of Islam. As I said, that's not, not in my lane. So again, as a constitutional lawyer, the whole point of cases animated by separation of powers, principles, and foreign affairs, that Article 3 cannot, repeat, cannot, and should not put Article 2 to the test of explaining uh, what, uh, you know, how rational uh, how persuasive is its policy argumentation, and that, with respect, applies to whether or not one wants to brief uh, various problems associated with radical Islam, or as the as the district courts have done, and 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 the Ninth Circuit in particular have done, sort of poke fun at the executive because of a failure, and it was particularly prevalent in the first executive order litigation, the failure to conduct interagency process, and pointing out that the previous administrations felt that the proper remedy here was stronger vetting and not uh, and 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 not this type of a ban, and how they have not persuaded that there's evidence that any of uh, um, individuals who came from those six countries have engaged in uh, terrorist activities, et cetera, et cetera, because I just want to make sure our listeners appreciate the consequences of going down that path. Even if you have very persuasive policy reasoning, you go down that path and the judiciary engages in the wholesale balancing of a governmental interest against the alleged constitutional violations being pled by the other side. In that context, the judiciary, Article 3, is a true king, is a true master of a decision, not Article 2. That would make the judiciary the arbiter of American foreign policy. That would be horribly bad. I, I hope Ilya and I would agree on that, at least on that, but also be utterly unconstitutional. So I, I hope not to see any discussion about threat assessments and the quality of interagency process, or which threat assessment, of course, would get into the factors, some other, uh, which the, 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 the question I mentioned. So I think we probably disagree on this one as well. Uh, the general point here is very simple. There is no foreign policy or security policy exception to the general limitations on government power imposed by the Constitution. There is no clause in the Constitution that says, well, you can't violate this right except when it comes to foreign policy or national security. And historically, when courts have decided to look the other way because of national security context, often, or foreign policy, policy context, often very bad results have occurred. Uh, this occurred during World War I, during World War II, and many other occasions. So the idea is not that the judicial branch somehow should govern foreign policy. It's certainly not my view that it should. Rather, that the judicial branch should apply constitutional limitations to foreign policy, just as it applies to other sensitive areas of policy. I don't believe that the judiciary should govern government spending or domestic policy or any number of other questions which also raise complex issues, uh, but at the same time, constitutional limitations apply to all of those kinds of policies. Uh, on the more specific issue of Islam, I'm not going to attempt to ex explicate what is or is not Islam. I will merely say that Islam is a religion with many different schools of thought that over, I think, a billion and a half people or so believe in. So you can certainly point to parts of it that have political implications, including uh, very dangerous ones. But the same thing could be said about most other religions. There are passages in the Bible which seem to endorse slavery, the oppression of women and the like. Does that mean that the president would have the authority to exclude or target uh, Christians or Jews? I, I don't think so. Uh, and the same point applies here, uh, that... Uh, when you look at any religion that dates back hundreds or thousands of years, there are going to be things in its traditions uh, which uh, look very bad from the standpoint of modern liberal values. Uh, it doesn't mean that the president has a blank check uh, to discriminate against adherents of those religions uh, in national security contexts or uh, other contexts for that matter. Uh, but I frankly highly doubt that these kinds of issues are going to come up before the Supreme Court. Among other things, uh, generally you're not supposed to introduce new factual evidence at the uh, appellate stage like this that uh, that factual evidence is uh, evidence that's supposed to be considered by the uh, trial court. 
to get back, to, if I may get back to the law for 45 seconds, Ilya, surely you agree with me that it's not a question of judiciary not participating, the question of judiciary participating how. The entire ethos of foreign affairs related cases, including the three I keep mentioning, is utmost deference, near absolute deference. And just to mention another factor, the Islamic political question doctrine, begin with the seminal case of Baker versus Carr. I'm sure you teach that. Political question doctrine stands for the proposition that judicially is disabled, unable, not supposed to, incapable of adjudicating certain issues, no matter what you plead as far as deprivation of constitutional rights is concerned. I mean, just black letter law. I, I only very partially uh, agree with you there. I think the political questions doctrine is a massive mess. Uh, and uh, I would note that in Baker versus Carr, they ultimately concluded that something as intimately political uh, as redistricting can sometimes be considered by the judiciary. As to the tenor of those cases, I think I've uh, covered them uh, previously. I think they are overly deferential and should ultimately be overruled, but at the same time, they leave enough wiggle room that uh, you could strike down the travel ban without overruling them, uh, because here you don't have a bona fide, uh, by which it, uh, is meant a uh, sincere uh, and plausible rationale. Earlier, how can it be? In Mundell, there was not a question of guessing and motivations. In Mundell, the executive branch did not dispute that the sole reason this professor was excluded because of his Marxist belief. Uh, beliefs. The court never was presented with any evidence that, that having somebody come here with Marxist beliefs presented any harm whatsoever. It would have been a slam dunk to, to overturn this in the domestic sphere. The court was not troubled by this at all. So, so I, 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 I refer to like the same case. answer. The rationale offered by the government was not pretextual, even though it was weak and stupid. Weak and stupid is not the same thing as pretextual. Moreover, that case did not involve a structural limitation on government power, such as the Establishment Clause. Well, uh, there's nothing in the case law. Can we at least be honest with, with our listeners? There's nothing in the case law that makes this distinction. You're talking about how things should be. I'm being a pragmatic litigator. The case law is 100% on the side of, uh, of a government here. Now, you may disagree with my reading of the Constitution, but that's, that's a classical you know, professorial debate. It's not a litigation debate. It's not up to the circuit courts or district courts to invent something that flies in the face of Supreme Court precedent. And believe me, Supreme Court cases, uh, to the extent they reach the merits, and I think they will, they are not going to come out the way you're suggesting. Well, we'll see. Uh, but the case law specifically does say it has to be bona fide, and it does not address the question of whether there's a distinction uh, between structural uh, limits and individual rights, and therefore it does not bar such a distinction. Uh, gentlemen, we've got, uh, we're just about out of time here. Uh, let me ask. We've got four questions pending. Do we have time? Uh, do I, uh, both of you have time to take one more question? Sure, I do. I do. Okay. Let's carry on then. Uh, this is Tim from one of the flyover states. Is the Supreme Court here substituting its judgment, lower courts have done in the case, for that of the executive by approving parts of an executive order uh, issued by the president in a manner which has obvious elements of foreign affairs and national defense experts, i.e. 9-11? And hasn't the Supreme Court also substituted its judgment for Congress? which has enacted statutory measures dealing with immigration and travel and extending powers to the executive to act in those areas. So in essence, isn't the Supreme Court, and by extension, uh, the uh, lower federal courts who approve this, uh, the or there who didn't approve this, who disapprove this, acting as both super executive and super legislature, is that permitted by our Constitution? Are these issues being raised in the case? Ilya? Sure. Uh, I think this sort of argument can be raised against any exercise of judicial review. Any time the courts strike any official action down, whether one by Congress or by the president, they're in effect saying that, uh, that those other branches of government's judgment was wrong with respect to at least some of the constitutional questions involved. Uh, we've already talked uh, several times in this call uh, about the issue of whether things are different uh, in foreign policy and defense. I would merely reiterate the point
point that there is nothing in the text of the Constitution which says that either structural limitations on government power like the Establishment Clause or individual rights like the rest of the Bill of Rights uh, or most of the rest of the Bill of Rights uh, are somehow suspended or even have weaker weight uh, in the foreign policy context. Foreign policy does raise some sensitive and complicated issues, uh, but the same thing is true of many aspects of domestic policy. Well, um, we continue to disagree, but I would just say the questioner made an excellent observation. We're talking about a situation where both uh, political branches are acting in, in unison, uh, and it's more than just Article One approving of exercise of discretion by Article Two. We're talking about Article One expressly delegating in the relevant provisions of INA authority and and pretty much discretionary authority, which is you know unusual even uh, in the age of broadly written statute to the executive. So we're in, in the highest triptych uh, quadrant of, of Youngstown, uh, and for the judiciary to impose its view is, is particularly offensive. But look, I, I'm not going to rehash um, my view that the judiciary, in, in, on these types of issues, in these types of circumstances, is disposed to pay an, a near absolute deference to the executive. But let me just say that I fundamentally disagree uh, with uh, with Ilya, that the reference to bona fide is somehow implying the need to make a value judgment uh, on the part of Article 3 as to what they think, whether something is bona fide or not. Because let me just say one thing, and it's important, I think, for listeners to appreciate. There are really no third way here. There are some places in life, but not here. We either have a near absolute deference that is reflected in existing case law by Article 3 to the decisions by the executive, particularly then they're reinforced by appropriate congressional delegation, or we're going to have judicial micromanagement of American foreign policy on any number of issues, including use of drones, uh, including, you know, I mean, look, if, if Trump is such an, an inveterate uh, a Muslim abuser, you can criticize the imposition of sanctions or use of force on the part of uh, or against some majority Muslim country. In that situation, judiciary would be the true arbiter of American foreign policy, which would be utterly unconstitutional and disastrous. So as, as difficult it may be for somebody like Hillary to swallow the policy outcome in this case, and by the way, I'm not holding the candle to the policy merits of those executive orders at all. You have to accept the good with the bad. There's just the, the consequences of getting the judiciary. And, and let's also be candid and acknowledge, in the domestic sphere, judiciary is the ultimate arbiter of the quality of decisions, be they statutory decisions, statutory implications and constitutional implications. And the only thing that that distinguishes, you know, one judicial decision from another is, is, is the degree of self-discernment and restraint they exercise. I would hate to see foreign policy be driven by the same calculus. Thank you. I would merely say that uh, in this case, we have lots of evidence of unconstitutional animus in cases involving drones and the like, at least to this point, we don't. Uh, if presidents want to avoid judicial scrutiny of that, uh, they should try not engaging in and promoting bigotry in the way that Trump did. Trump okay. has himself to blame for the... Okay, but Ilya, forgive here. me. If, if, you accept, if I accept, and I, I do not, the proposition that uh, President Trump exhibited bigotry under your logic, he has been dispossessed of any traditional tools of statecraft and foreign policy because you can ascribe the same animus to his use of force in Syria, his, uh, his decisions on, on economic punishment of, of Iran. I mean, so what? American people elected somebody who basically is divested of the authority that Framers put in Article 2? That's absurd. Uh, no, it doesn't follow at all. The fact that somebody was animated by bigotry with respect to one decision doesn't mean that they were uh, animated by it with respect to all. Uh, Says who? If any it's a decision that impacts the uh, same class. Evidence Says who? Specifics to particular case. Uh, but the same point applies to other pretextual discrimination cases in the domestic sphere, by the way, when uh, one uh, executives or legislatures uh, policies in one area are struck down in that basis, it doesn't follow that 
all policies by that entity affecting that particular group are struck down. But, but a thought experiment, let's say President Trump says something else that you would find offensive or biased prior to using drones against a, uh, a group in a majority Muslim country. Under your logic, that would be, that would be off the table, subject to judicial invalidation. It depends it on the be. particular action. But yes, if there is clear proof that the president has ordered the killing of a person simply on the basis of religious bigotry, I think that's pretty obviously unconstitutional. Uh, and I think there's good reason for courts to strike that down. If we have a situation where merely by the fact that, some, that the person is outside of the country, the president can kill whoever he wants based on even blatant religious, racial, or other bigotry, I think that would be a serious undermining of the constitutional system. And Leon, to that logic, much of a use of force in World War II would have been prescribed because we sure exhibited, if you look at the at, at the statements by various government officials and, and, and popular culture, absolutely horrendous discriminatory feelings, particularly towards the Japanese. Uh, well, gentlemen, I'm afraid. I'm a, gentlemen, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it right there. We're we're already six or seven minutes over. We've got uh, another teleform conference call coming up shortly, um, so I, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there. We will re revisit this issue, uh, this issue again, of course, uh, as the court does, and uh, uh, very likely we can have you both back. My apologies to the callers who remain on on the phone. Uh, hoping to ask a question. We've just run out of time. Uh, but my thanks to, uh, to Professor Ilya Soman and David Rifkin and, of course, Professor Josh Blackman. My thanks as well to all our callers uh, for, for dialing in and for your thoughtful questions. A reminder that our next scheduled telephone conference call is going to begin in uh, about 20 minutes, but like a day-night doubleheader, we'll be uh, taking an intermission in between. Um, so until the next call, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.